Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is the recipient of a grant from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. When someone close to us dies, having a reminder of them that you can see every day and keep close to you can be a great comfort. So it's no surprise I'm drawn to Lori Mason's memorial quilts. Each piece that she creates is thoughtfully designed with the deceased loved one in mind. She gets to know about them and transforms garments like their favorite Hawaiian shirts, their judges' robes, uniforms, and other personal fabrics into a piece of art that reflects their lives. Head over to lauriemasondesign.com and check out examples of how she honors each individual's unique life with her art. Her process is well-documented and will give you a sense of the curiosity and intention that she brings to each quilt project. It's a wonderful gift we can give ourselves, snuggling under a quilt that's an artful remembrance and celebration of those we love. Head over to lauriemasondesign.com or to our show notes to learn more. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness explores the different ways we grieve, the gratitude that allows us to persevere, and the greatness we discover along the way, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. Throughout his childhood, David Komeji was encouraged by his family and teachers to be a free thinker. He was inspired to be curious and make good choices for himself without the pressure to always arrive at correct answers. His family instilled in him the responsibility of caring for the greater community, an ethos that he carried forward in his life. He grew up in a Japanese-American household in Hawaii, which spanned three generations. Growing up, David's family observed both Christian and Japanese Buddhist spiritual practices. He was also introduced to a melange of religious philosophy through his teachers, including Native Hawaiian, Korean shamanism, and Taoist tradition and ritual. David's first significant experience with death was at the age of nine, when his grandfather passed away. He observed his family coming together in the Japanese Buddhist tradition to prepare his grandfather's body for cremation, attend a series of memorials, and participate in mourning rituals. As an adult, when his grandmother passed away, he had to seek out his own structure to honor her in his new home of Portland. He found a temple and began attending regularly. He eventually began assisting with temple preparation and later was encouraged to become a Buddhist priest. Professionally, David was a health practitioner who also advocated for health care for vulnerable populations. He served as a policy analyst for the Oregon Health Authority, working on health care legislation and helping to build a medical, dental, and behavioral health facility in the small city of Estacada. His work on health care revealed the urgent needs of the homeless community. David would go on to be involved with the Village Coalition, an advocacy group pursuing solutions for the houseless community of Portland. As a Buddhist priest, as a physical therapist, And with the vulnerable populations he works with, David is committed to the work of helping others heal. Currently, David volunteers at the Oregon State Penitentiary, where he helps remind prisoners of their value as human beings. 
He brings activities from the outside world, as well as a sense of normalcy into a highly structured and restricted environment. A recent project is the creation of a Japanese healing garden within the prison, bringing inspiration and beauty to an unlikely place. While I'm no master gardener, I've always found the time spent with my hands in the dirt to be rewarding. Heading to my backyard, nurturing plants, watching them grow, centers me. The changing of the seasons invites rituals of plantings and harvests and the planning and patience that come with them. There is something healing about observing the natural world. The rituals we participate in are powerful. Part of Buddhism is expressed through each culture, independent of each other. So Japanese has a Japanese expression of Buddhism, Chinese, Southeast Asian, as well as American Buddhism. In the Japanese Buddhist tradition, there's a veneration of one's ancestors so we don't forget. And so there is a prescribed series of services that occur prior to one's passing. So there is the day before someone is actively dying as a service, a service right after one dies, and a wake or body cleansing, the funeral, and that should all occur within the first six days after someone passes. And as that goes on, there's a ritual of every week the family gathers. So the grief that is expressed is never denied. Mm. But over time, it starts to become more used to, to the idea in a very formal setting. So the grief that starts off so soul-wrenching initially becomes just a whole. And as we progress through the grieving process, the memorial process, the entire process lasts 50 to 100 years. So the clan continues to gather annually after the first year to continue to remember the individual's past. And at the point of 20 to 30 years, the people who were immediately close to the person who's passed have generally passed as well. So then Mm -hmm. that person starts to move into ancestral remembrances. So this continual process of remembering not only the person you love, but the people before them, just continues this process of remembrance. So it creates a connectivity between now, the immediate past, and the long-term past. So an example of that is my immediate family, my brothers and I, went to visit my grandmother's home, which is 250 years old, where she was born. We were able to see the graves from the 1300s to the present day of that family line. And to be able to understand that we are a product of all of those people. Yes. That the gratitude that comes with that is interesting. A bit of a sidebar, not related to Buddhism, but I think is very interesting is my niece is aware of energies around her, as I am. And she said to me when we drove up to the house and the graveyards in the backyard that 
there is a lot of stuff here. I said, yeah, there is a lot of energies around here. All we need to do is let them know who we are, why we're there, and they won't bother us. We did a bit of a ritual. What was the ritual? Even though there's a cultural language shift, it is my impression that the idea intent transcends language. Sure. So putting our intent of this is who we are in our first tongue, let them, they knew who we were. And she then said, they backed off. I said, yeah, all we needed to do was let them know who we are and why we're there. It's a very expansive feeling, very expansive, because it really broadens the sense of people, of family, of the universality of life. Something else you just said made me think, too, like, I've often wondered, like, what happens? Because, you know, my mom died when I was 10 years old, and I remember, you know, we we would go there all the time for her, you know, on, on, like, Mother's Day or for... Uh, maybe her birthday or on the anniversary of when she died and leave flowers. And it was a solemn visit, sometimes quick, sometimes longer. And then my grandparents were there too, and not necessarily right next to each other. So you see these other names on other stones in the uh, cemetery. And I often think, what happens when nobody comes to visit these anymore? It's interesting to me, like, It also reminds me of like when you see old photographs in a thrift store. That moves me in a certain way that I can't really explain. I think part of that thinking, which I think we all right now, particularly during this pandemic, is look at the existential question of do we really matter Mm. individually as well as collectively? And what does that mean? Because this pause that we're taking right now, I'm hoping, People take the chance to understand that, yes, blood matters, but also relationship matters, Mm. whether they are of immediate family or friends or people we don't even know. Because I think we can have an impact. It may not be lasting, but it could be significant. Mm -hmm. And thinking about going to your mother's grave and, you know, being there, it has a meaning. At the same time, I look at places like the um, Punchbowl National Cemetery in Hawaii, where there are many people who are buried there that family don't come to visit. But I also look at how holy or sacred the land is, no matter what. Mm. And that collective energies that we don't necessarily understand or know is there. And you mm. can just sense the presence. And it's, I don't look at things as necessarily specific entities, but more of a collective. Mm-hmm. I make them as an entity because that's what I know. This is who I am. This is where we are. But if you look at the idea of Einstein, that energy is never created or destroyed, mm-hmm. we are just in this form right now. And at another time, we could be rejoining this larger milieu. What are these sacred places? So are these sacred places a reminder of that energy transfers? I see sacred places show up everywhere. They don't have to be designated as cemeteries. I look at the, the word is not power, but the effect or the calm. And 
sacred, you know, frequently has a sense of meaning of calm and peace. Mm-hmm. But there's also could be some destruction or unsettledness. I look at the volcano in Hawaii. That is a very sacred place. Mm-hmm. And I am not afraid of what's possible. It is just what is possible. Mm. Looking at it in a place of reverence and appreciation is how I try to remember my family as well as people who've passed that I know. If you'd like to support our work with grief, gratitude, and greatness, consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have a business that supports people who are listening to our show, let's talk about how you can sponsor an episode or two or three. So how did you come to your advocacy around combining your work in healthcare with helping the homeless? So it was a pretty circuitous route. Um, When the Affordable Care Act was passed by the Obama administration, I was appointed by the governor to be one of the 120 people to inform all policy around implementation of Oregon's version of the Affordable Care Act. And I was asked to represent the over 50 crowd, the Asian crowd, and developmental disabilities crowd, because I was one old Japanese American and worked with the disabled. It kind of works. (laughs) So I was able to participate that way, and I was able to get a grasp or a glimpse into the policy decision-making and how decisions were made to deliver services to people. So subsequent to that, I went to help with Medicaid specifically for durable medical equipment because I don't think it's always equitable and fair. Then, (laughs) as that started to close up, I was on a grand jury from Oldham County. Uh And I saw the economic, socioeconomic disparity and the impact on individuals in total, but also looking at the way the houseless were treated or chronically mentally ill were treated behavioral healthy. And I thought, oh, this is really not a, there needs to be something done here. Yeah. And so a friend of mine suggested to me that I might check into this village coalition and he would oh, yeah. uh, make a recommendation for them to accept me as a participant. Mm-hmm. So I did. It's a very loose, very good collaborative, direct democracy organization that has been very instrumental in advocating for the houseless, mm-hmm. as well as to give responsibility and agency to like-minded people. seems like so many of us don't see houseless people. How do you think we can all become more aware as we all do share this community together? One of the things that I really needed to do early on was face my internal biases about what do people look like, what do they smell like, what, how do they speak, how do they present themselves. In order to humanize, to give them 
they're due as humans, I needed to look at my own stuff. And I had to really look hard at how was I judging people? Mm. And did I act on those judgments? And if I did, what was the outcomes of those actions? I realized that I do have internal biases mm. and that I, need, I needed to do something different with what I had in order to have an impact. And I think it's very easy when people are not seen, when they're hiding away in under bridges or, or whatever, that they're not part of our visceral world. So mm-hmm. then they no longer exist. As the bridges were closed, under the bridges were closed and people were moved out from campsites, they became more visible. Mm-hmm. And people just thought, wow, look how many more people we have who are houseless here. And Clackamas County did an exceptional job of actually checking with the individuals that were housed to see how long they had lived in the state, lived in the county, in the community. And it turns out there are only 8% of travelers. They have been here and they have just been economically displaced from the communities of origin. So they've been here. We haven't noticed them. Now we're starting to notice them. What can we do to humanize them? Look them in the face. Say hello. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. My youngest son is heartbroken over homelessness. We've had this conversation many, many, many times where he personally feels guilty that he has a home to go to every day when others don't. And I do tell him, like, the most important thing you can do is acknowledge that they're there. And so we always say hi and sometimes exchange names. Right. Yeah. It's incredible that I can learn that lesson from my young son. I mean, children are great. They haven't built up some of the filters that we have. Yeah, our biases. You think we gather them up as we grow and move through life? Well, I think so much of the biases we do have come from our lived experience. And so when something comes in that's not part of our traditional experience, there's usually a question about it or just don't know what to do with it. So you kind of don't do anything with it. It's kind of funny because I would have never thought that I would have been doing something like this before. Why is that? Because I came from a household that was educated. Our question for the family was, what graduate school were you going to go to on the mainland? And to be able to go from that point of view to how do I help somebody have safety, have a shelter, have food, and get support. Thank you for listening in to this episode of Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness. We appreciate you following the work we do and would love it if you'd share us with your friends and family. Your recommendation helps us reach more ears and build upon the work we're doing. In addition to working with the homeless, you've also been working with the incarcerated. How did you get this idea to create a garden? The garden isn't my idea. It's actually the adults in custody's idea. Oh, it's right. It's their idea. It's their idea. And I came on board well into this process. Mm. And I entered 
the system through Ikebana that I do, Japanese fire engine, because uh, many of the principles of fundamental thinking under Ikebana and Japanese gardening are the same. It was suggested to me that I be able to share some of those ideas through practice of Ikebana with the guys so they start one understand the aesthetic as well as the principles at play for Ikebana and the Japanese garden. So you were going into the prisons teaching Ikebana yeah. to the incarcerated. What was that yeah. like? Working with the guides is really interesting. The prison system is a culture and there is a separate culture with adults in custody. There is a third culture of the prison staff amongst themselves. So you have these three cultures that are coexisting but not really interacting well with each other. So it's a very interesting, depends who's working what day on how things happen. Okay, and so that's what you observe when you're in there. As I'm trying to even get in there. So for me to get to take the materials in to teach a class, I send an itemized list of everything that I'm going to be taking in, including number of towels, number of buckets, number of pitchers, number of bases, amount of flower material that needs to be reviewed by the commanding officer that then gets returned and faxed to me to then take over to go through three inventories to get into the building. Okay, I totally get how this is not like, easy, but... I'm wondering, like, when you're with these individuals who are incarcerated, when you're actually instructing them on how to do these flower arrangements, what are you seeing that's happening with these inmates? So before I even did started doing the classes, I did a demonstration for the Asian Pacific Family Club. So mm -hmm. I did an hour program for them. The most striking thing was one comment that just resonated with me, even to this day, is, and when I took all the materials in, the guy said, so this is the smell of green. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, you're killing me, dude. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, it's uh, that's true. We take that for granted. So then I started to reframe my own thinking of let's not make this so much about the teaching part. But how do I engage them with something that's natural? or alive, or was alive, or has fragrance, has texture, has color. Just something that's different for them that normally occurs outside that they don't have. Give it some framework, mind you. Just have them, so I would intentionally take in things that are fragrant, intentionally take in things that had different textures, just so they would see something beyond beige and blue. I just really take a step back and say, so really, what am I doing here? I'm reminded of a time that I volunteered to help a friend who worked for the county asked me to come in and talk to some teenage moms about how to be smart about shopping for themselves and their babies. I came in with a whole idea of what I was going to present. And I think I learned way more than any of those girls learned from me. It taught me a lot about humility and assuming how easy it is to assume how others live and what their lives are like. What really struck me at this time in our societal pandemic situation is my 
construct of time. Because I want things to move. I want things to happen. I don't need to necessarily need to know exactly when, but I, I expect things to change. And one of the fellas in early February said, for him, I don't count it in days or a week. I count it in decades. Implication being, their sense of time is so different. And I've been thinking about that recently. I thought, that is so true. I, my sense of time is so off right now. It's, it's just altered. And I thought, you know, how do I interact with time now is different. I have a better understanding of what I thought was unresponsiveness on their end. But mm. being, this is just their timeline. They're just going according to a time. They have 40 years. 30, 40, 50 years in there, and a week to respond to an email is not a big deal. A phone call back in three days is not a big deal. And I thought, you know, David, you need to back off here. You know, these folks have four walls or three walls and an iron bar. You brought this sense of a world that they don't have access to. You brought that in to their three walls and bars, but now you can't. What they valued more than me bringing anything in was just showing up. That I was a reliable human being who came to see them. That was the most important thing to them. Knowing the current situation, I've been writing to, they have, there are 12 clubs within this, this penitentiary. And mm -hmm. so I've been writing to each club every week a card just mm -hmm. to know they're not forgotten and try to use inspirational or just kind of how you doing kind of things from the perspective of their club. So there's a veterans club, a lifers club, a Latino club, an African-American club, a Toastmasters club, but just find something that demonstrates that I am actually paying attention to who they are. Yes, as humans, not prisoners. Correct. I get the sense that they value that effort of continued effort, that I am predictable for them, that I'm reliable for them. Maybe this is me assuming again, but I imagine that a lot of people who find themselves as incarcerated never had somebody or somebody's that they could count on to be reliable and consistent. Yeah, I think that's part of it. It's a surprising number of adults who are in custody who come out of the foster care system. I, mean, I was surprised, who never really had a stable household. I, I was shocked. But they know is what they see on TV or what they've learned in jail. The hyper-masculine, toxic, yada, yada, that's what they know. Mm. And by big rights in the prison, that's really difficult. It's really hard to see people be so close to their inner selves that it's, it's just heartbreaking. Do you ever just tell yourself, like, I just don't know how that I can keep doing this? I mean, I imagine it's taxing on you. That's not but the point, though. That's not the point. That's not why I do it. The point is with whatever I have available. I think you'd find this kind of cute. There's a couple of the guys who said, you know, I want to be like you, except not so much like you. <laughs> and it's like, what does that mean? It's like, you show up, you take care of us, do what you want. I don't think I can do that. It's like, yeah, you can if you want to. 
and I thought that was one of the highest compliments I can say. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness was created by me, Sarah Shaul, and is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn with music by Samantha Jensen. Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Word of mouth helps us find new listeners, so please leave us a review and let your friends know about us. More information about this episode and how to contact us can be found in our show notes and at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You'll also find links to follow us on Instagram, Patreon, and Facebook. Join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you. Sharing a meal with others is my favorite place to engage in deep, meaningful, and fun conversations. On the Four Top Podcast, three thought leaders join host Catherine Cole for a fast-moving roundtable discussion of the hot-button topics in food and beverage. The show covers a wide array of topics from farming to fine dining. The Four Top is a James Beard and IACP award-winning national food and beverage podcast presented by OPB for NPR One. Start listening now at thefortop.org, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.